Hello, and welcome back to Our Foundations, where we cover the core systems of our society, that of government, money, and education. Today, we are going to look at the origins of money. We are going to go all the way back to the earliest times where we see people exchanging things and go from barter to commodity money to metals. We're going to go into credit money and banking and the influence of governments on money. And we'll finally get into kind of the more recent developments in things like fractional reserve banking and free banking eras and things of this nature. So that's where we're going, and I hope you enjoy. So to begin with, the first mode of exchange that people used thousands of years ago was bartering. And it was very simple, and it evolved naturally out of people interacting and doing things. So basically, if one person has more than they need of a given item, so say they harvested a whole bunch of blueberries, and you know they're not too fond of blueberries, but you know they're going to eat some, so the rest of them, they need something to do with them. Well, they run across somebody else that makes moccasin shoes and the blueberry man he really needed a new pair of shoes so he takes his extra blueberries and the moccasin person maybe she's got five different extra pairs of moccasins that she doesn't need she's wearing the ones she likes she's given some to her family and she's got these extras so they make a mutual exchange between a specific amount of blueberries and a pair of moccasins and both parties are happy. They have a voluntary exchange that they are both happy with. And that's a, you know, simple example of the beginnings of bartering. Now, this got more complex and interactive once societies and people groups started settling down and getting into more agriculture economies, because at that point in time, people began to grow crops and they began to domesticate livestock and with this they stayed in one place instead of being nomadic and roaming around and following the herds and the seasons instead they would stay in one place they started to build more permanent homes and that's how cities developed well of course when you have large-scale farming going on and large amounts of crops being grown there is typically going to be more than one family needs of a given crop and that's just normal and natural. Well, if you're living in a city with many other people, say hundreds, for example, there's probably going to be um, a butcher out there that raises livestock and butcher butchers them for meat. And so that butcher is going to have plenty of meat for himself and his family, but there's almost guaranteed to be plenty of extra meat that he doesn't need. So especially in a society of this nature where you have more of a, a city atmosphere, then you're going to have situations like this where someone has extra grain, a butcher has extra meat, and they meet together and exchange one for the other. And so that's how bartering just kind of evolved as societies started to evolve. Now, one interesting aspect would be that 
sometimes, say the man who has grain wants to get some extra meat and he goes to the butcher and says, hey, I will trade you this bushel of grain for five pounds of meat. But the butcher, he doesn't really need any more grain right now. And he says, you know, I'm sorry, that's, that's a good deal and that's fine, but, but I just don't need it right now. So no thank you. Maybe next time. Well, the man with the grain, he, he still wants his meat. So maybe he asks the butcher, well, what would you like? And the butcher may say, I need some salt to preserve my meat. So the man, the farmer that has the grain, would then take his grain to a salt merchant. And he would exchange his grain for salt. Then he would take that salt back to the butcher and say, hey, what about exchanging me that five pounds of meat for this salt? And the butcher would probably say, great, let's do it. Give it to me now. Here's your meat. And everybody would be happy. And so what we see evolving out of these types of interactions that started to occur as you had more and more people populating certain areas and more merchants that were coming through these newly springing up towns and societies in different cultures, we start seeing that certain commodities start being used in bartering and in exchanging. And we see this from early dates, way back, like the pre-3000 BC era in Mesopotamia. There are records of exchanges like this. And what this leads to is what's referred to as commodity money, where a certain commodity, and in the example I gave that was salt, is used as a medium of exchange, as money. And this happened in all different kinds of cultures. Some used seashells, some used giant boulders, some used salt was fairly common, um, some used livestock. They're just all different things. And typically it was something that most people wanted was the most common thing that would come up as commodity money. And so salt was really big, um, livestock was really big, and then metals started getting more and more popular. Now, there are multiple cultures that used iron. And iron is a very good commodity money because it can be melted down and used to make different tools and different weapons. So iron is very useful. So even if someone was exchanging a certain good for iron, say the person that gets the iron isn't really interested in continuing exchanging this iron for other goods, they can still just take this iron, melt it down, or bring it to a blacksmith, and they can get tools out of it. They can get weapons out of it. They can protect themselves. They can increase their harvest through their new tools and machines they make. And so this is something that is obviously very useful. Um, and that's kind of the beginnings of metals. This did occur with, um, with iron and with bronze. But what we start to see happen is that rarer metals start being used more commonly. And in general, the advantages of metal are many. They are much better than many other commodities. Uh, to begin with, metal is divisible. So you can melt it down or break it apart and separate metal into many different pieces, many different amounts, many different values. And you can also do the opposite, where you take a large amount of separate pieces of metal and you can smelt them and bring them back in together into one large piece. So metal is easily, relatively, 
divisible and can be divided up very well. Metal is also very durable. So unlike livestock who have lifespans, who catch diseases, who are very hard to take with you and travel with and still keep in the same condition, uh, metal is very durable. It is not going to rot. It's not going to spoil or go bad. It's not going to die. It's not really going to decay. So metal is extremely durable, which makes it very useful. Another aspect is that metal has this intrinsic value that even if you are not using it as a medium of exchange, it still does have value in and of itself. So like we said with iron and with bronze, those metals can be used to make things out of. And it can even be true of the more rare metals, such as gold or silver. Those might be broken down into jewelry would probably be the most common thing. Um, But intrinsically, those pieces of metal do have value in and of themselves, not just as a mode of exchange. So another aspect of this is scarcity. So metals, especially when you get into the more rare metals, they are scarce. There is a limited supply. And so with that, you are not just going to randomly have people come up with all kinds of metal and flood the market and it not be valued nearly as much anymore in a certain town because it's hard to come by. Things like gold have to be mined. They have to be processed. It's a long process and it's a resource intensive process. So it is expensive and time consuming And the result is that you have a limited quantity and a limited supply that is out there in the world. And so this makes it very useful for a medium of exchange because it keeps its value fairly well since the supply is relatively limited. One final advantage to metals being used as a commodity money is that it is fairly easy to carry around. It's pretty portable. So especially when you get to metals such as gold and silver, a small amount of gold actually has a fairly large value to it. So in order to transfer value, if you're taking it from your house to the market, which may be a few miles, you don't have to haul around 30 pounds of gold. You might have to haul around half a pound of gold to be able to trade for what you need. And that's very easy to do. That's not a big deal. You can keep it in your satchel or in your pocket, and it's not really that big of a deal. So especially the rare metals are very portable, and that makes them very convenient to move around and to take with you and to use in your exchanges. So those are probably the, those are probably the biggest aspects that make metal a very good commodity money because of all these different things that even though salt is divisible, salt isn't nearly as durable and it doesn't doesn't really have the scarcity that metal does. And even though livestock has an intrinsic value that anybody can just butcher it and eat it, very valuable, um, it's not necessarily as durable and definitely not as divisible if you want a milk cow that's going to continue giving you milk. You can't just cut it in half. It's not going to supply any milk anymore. So metals seem to, they seem to have all these different qualities all together, and it works perfect as money. 
let's shift gears to another type of money that has been used for a very long period of time and was taking place the same time that the use of commodity money was taking place, and that is credit money. So credit money is exactly what it sounds. It's using credit. So take, for example, an IOU note or a tally mark that says IOU one unit of said item. Um, This was something that sprang up out of necessity. Again, it evolved out of the interactions in a society. So let's go back to the farmer and the butcher, and let's use that example to demonstrate how credit money evolved. So you have the farmer who has some extra grain, and he wants some meat. So maybe they do exchange the grain for the meat on the first meeting. Then he comes back for a second meeting to get some more meat, and that's when the butcher said, you know, I don't need any more grain. So, as we said, the farmer went and got some salt and traded the butcher salt for meat, and everybody was happy. Well, now that the harvest is over, the farmer doesn't have any more grain, but he still would like some meat. And so he goes to the butcher and says that, look, I need some meat, and I want to purchase it from you, but I don't have any extra grain at the moment. However, two months from now... I will have plenty of grain, and I will give you 50% more grain than I gave you in our last exchange if you would do me the favor of letting me pay you later and advancing me the meat now. And so this sounds like a great deal to the butcher. He gets more than he did before, much more, and he's still out the same amount of meat. He doesn't need all that meat right at this instant, and he doesn't have a timing issue there like the farmer does. So he agrees, that's fine. And what the butcher does is he keeps a tally, and he marks one tally for one bushel of grain that the farmer owes him when that comes into stock. And so what happens is that now the farmer has credit with the butcher, and the butcher has a note that says that the farmer owes him a bushel of grain. And you can see how this would then evolve into a use of credit money, where that butcher takes his record of having one bushel that is owed to him. He goes to the farmer two months later when he knows that the harvest season has come again, And he gives that farmer his credit note. And the farmer says, yes, I do owe you one bushel. He takes the credit note, rips it up, and gives the butcher a a bushel of grain. And everybody's happy. Well, this got to be popular on a wide scale. And so let's, let's look at an example in a broader market. So let's say in the same example that the farmer wanted some meat advanced to him, he gave a certain amount of credit to the butcher, let's say that same one bushel. And that butcher then runs across a blacksmith, and the blacksmith has this nice new knife that would be perfect for the butcher. And the butcher says, you know, I don't have any extra meat, I just gave my last extras to the farmer down the road, but I do have 
credit with that farmer for the amount of one bushel of grain. So how about I pass that credit along to you, Mr. Blacksmith, and in exchange, you give me the knife. So in a sense, you're trading the knife for a bushel of grain. It's a, it's a great deal. That's a little knife, you know, and a bushel of grain's a good bit of grain, and you need it, and it's great. So the blacksmith says, sure, that is a great deal. I agree. And he takes this credit from the butcher, and now the blacksmith is the one that has the rights to a bushel of grain from the farmer. And so you can see how this form of credit, whether it be a note or a stone tablet or a board with tally marks in it, whatever the case may be, however they are recording these credits, these credits themselves can then be exchanged as a form of money, a medium of exchange. And so we see that the same way commodity money kind of evolved out of societal interactions in the marketplace, we see the same thing happen with credit money that starts to evolve out of the same, the same dynamic that occurs as you get societies that are interacting and trading more and more with one another. Uh, because trade can be complicated, especially when people are creating all of their own stuff. You don't have all these machines and large corporations and factories that are producing these mass quantities, and you don't have formal superstores that are on every corner or gas stations that you can walk in and buy whatever you want. These things don't exist. And so it gets fairly complicated to exchange things among one another when people don't necessarily always need exactly what you have. And so that's how money began to evolve out of these early societies. We do have plenty of examples of a combination of commodity money and credit money, and this leads to the origins of banking. So how this works is that you have, say, a merchant that's going from town to town, and he's selling his goods and buying different goods, and he is using gold because in the whole region that he goes through and travels through, gold is a commonly accepted medium of exchange, a commodity money. And this merchant, he starts to hear that there are bandits that have been robbing people on the road. And the merchant is, you know, he's wary. He's worried about it. He's not sure if he's going to make it to all the different cities he has to travel to without being accosted and having his gold taken from him. So the merchant comes up with this idea that, hey, at this next city I go to, I know there is a temple there that's a very big building. It's very well fortified. Um, it's very secure. They even have some guards that are posted there. So maybe what I'll try to do is talk to them and see if they would mind holding a portion of my gold for me there. And at the city after that I go to, the town center has a local office for the leader of that town, and that's also a very well-fortified place. They have soldiers there. Um, there's guards. I think that might be a good place to inquire at. And the stop after that, the third city I come to, there's a goldsmith there, and he has a large amount of gold that he has to keep secure and safe himself. I bet he would have some extra room to maybe store some of my gold. And what the merchant is thinking here is that if he stores 
an amount of gold at each one of these cities that he has to pass through, then the next time he comes through, he already has gold there that he can pull out from wherever he had stored it and use it to trade and then put it back in. And then as he travels to the next city, he doesn't have to travel with a large amount of gold because he already has a store at that next city and he dips into his store of gold there and he has his trades and he goes to the market and does everything he's going to do. And then he puts his gold back in whatever building or person that's holding it for him and he'll store his gold there again and move on to the next city and do the same thing. And so we can see the advantage here because the merchant doesn't have to carry his gold from place to place and risk it being lost. Or if he's on a ship, you know, you can have shipwrecks, you can have pirates, you can have bandits. There's lots of risk here. And he's cutting out a lot of that risk. So he'll probably carry a small amount of gold with him from place to place either way. But but at least this way, he doesn't have to carry it all with him. And he has a decent store at each place. Now, the advantage to the religious institution or the governmental building or the goldsmith, you know, whoever whoever the merchant goes to that has a very secure place and is willing to store his gold for him, that entity is going to be better off because they can charge a certain rate for keeping the merchant's gold safe. And so they don't really have to do anything extra. These are already very secure places. They already have their own valuables and treasure that they store and keep safe. So really, as long as they have some extra room, which all these are very big places already, they have plenty of room. So as long as they do, they don't really have to spend any extra resources to hold this stuff for the merchant. I mean, they have to interact with him once when he drops it off and each time he comes back, and that's about all they have to do. That's the only work required. And in exchange, they actually get paid for it. So that's a great deal. Now, what these institutions start to realize is that this can be a business and they can start storing money for not only merchants, but noblemen and even just common citizens, really anybody that has wealth, it is worth it for them to store it somewhere for a very small fee and not have to worry about any of these risks associated with it. And so that's what they begin to do. Now, I had said that there's a combination here between commodity money and credit money. And so far, we've just talked about the commodity money, and that's being stored in these locations. Well, where we have a connection to credit money is that these institutions begin to give out credit on the gold that they have in store. So in the example of the merchant storing his gold at the temple, for example, the temple may issue the merchant um, some IOU notes, some credit notes, and those credit notes are redeemable for his gold. So if he put 10 pounds of gold in the temple, then the temple gives him 10 notes that are each worth the redemption of one pound of gold. And that's how that works. So the merchant can go back to the temple next time and he can redeem however much he wants and the temple will give it to him. Well, what the merchant starts to realize is that over time, many of the people in the marketplace at this town are also using that same temple as a storage facility for their wealth. And therefore, 
they also have these credit notes that they have um, so that they can redeem their own credit notes for their own gold at the temple. So the merchant starts to realize that, hey, instead of me going to the temple, getting my gold, coming back to the market, making my trade, going back to the temple, putting my gold back in store, and probably paying a fee each time you come in and out, why do I do this? Why don't I just exchange this credit note from the temple with the goods that I need? And if I need to buy something, I will just give the people at the marketplace my credit notes and they'll give me their goods. And, you know, it's just as valuable for them to have a credit note as it is a piece of gold. And it's probably a lot more convenient for them just as it is for me. And so this dynamic starts to evolve in these different cities and cultures and societies where certain institutions or certain people, families, um, religious places, government offices, basically any place that is extremely secure and holds wealth and value, you had examples of them getting into what we would say now is the banking business. And as they did, and as they start issuing these credit notes, and then these credit notes start being used by the different traders in the area, we start to see more what we would recognize as money being used um, commonly in the common marketplace. Now, the one issue is that this credit money issued by these institutions, even though it is backed up by commodity money, it is, it's restricted to a specific location. So in order to redeem this note, you have to physically go to the temple and redeem it. Now, if the merchant goes to the next city, which might be 200 miles away, and he tries trading some credit notes for some goods, those merchants there might not be interested in taking this credit note that they then have to go 200 miles up the road to exchange to actually get some gold that they can then take back and use to trade with. That's, that's not really going to work out. And so instead, they need something better to use. They need something that will be accepted in a more universal way that can keep its value. And what we see start to spring up around 600 BC is the use of coins. And these are coins as we know them and as we would think of. Um, one of the earliest examples is in Lydia, and they use these coins there, and it spread to other Greek cities in the area. And what they were were typically coins made out of a specific metal, like gold or silver, for example. And so you get all these benefits of a commodity money, and that is that metal, um, where, you know, it's durable, it's divisible, has intrinsic value, blah, blah, blah. But you have it in standard units that you can trade very easily, that are recognized very easily. And this starts to be very popular for obvious reasons. It works very well. You can use it just like you use these credit notes, which is super easy and convenient. However, you can use it anywhere you want at all the different cities and they're more than likely going to accept them because if nothing else, they are worth their weight in whatever metal they are. And so they're going to have value no matter what. You don't have to go anywhere special to redeem them because 
they are that gold in and of themselves. So an interesting aspect is that when you look at historical China and India, they also had coins of a certain nature that start to spring up around this same time period, around 600 BC. It doesn't seem like these cultures had a lot of interaction with each other, so it appears that these different cultures had this type of money evolve naturally and separately and independently of each other, which is pretty interesting. Um, We talked about how in Lydia you had the coins that started to be used. Well, in India, we see around this time period that they started using these punched metal discs, and they would use those in the same way, and that evolved as a form of money. In China, they made types of coins that had holes in them, and what they would do is they would run strings through the holes, and that's how they would carry them around and store them, and things of that nature is, you know, pretty convenient. Makes sense. Well, that's what started to spring up in China around this time period. So we start to see that societies are trading with one another using what we would think of as money. And they are using this commodity money or a metal-based money. They're using these coins. And this is becoming very popular. You still do have credit money that is being used by different institutions in different areas and different cities. And so that's coming up. And with that, you have these institutions that are beginning to look more like banks as we would think of them now, or at least starting to get into the banking business. Um, With this, you still do have one issue of safety. So even though your coins are easy to trade back and forth and generally accepted and fairly standardized to an extent, it, it still can be dangerous to carry them abroad and to travel with them. So it's not always practical, and that does reinforce the position of these banking institutions and keeps the credit money as also being very popular and very valuable. They balance each other out because what can happen is these early banking institutions, instead of keeping gold in reserve, they can keep coins in reserve and issue credit for them. And so you see this dynamic where the credit money and the commodity money seem to work together in pairs throughout history, and they both evolve together, and they both serve a purpose, a good purpose. Moving on, let's start to introduce governments into this conversation of the evolution of money. I'm going to start with a quote from James Madison, and it goes like this. History records that the money changers have used every form of abuse, intrigue, deceit, and violent means possible to maintain their control over governments by controlling money and its issuance. So, We can see here the connection that Madison draws between governments and money, and that is the role of the money changers. So as we start to talk about these institutions that start getting into the banking business, we do see that they have a large influence on politics and on religion of their areas and their times. So look at the Medici family, for example. 
they built this giant banking empire and had huge amounts of influence on multiple governments, even on the Pope and on many other aspects of society, giant building projects and artists, famous artists that we still talk about today have been funded by Medici money. And all this goes back to the fact that they controlled money, and through that, they controlled power in politics and in governments. So what we begin to see is that governments start to take a larger and larger role in money. Now, number one, governments always want taxes, and the easiest way to get taxes is by taking money, obviously. So, because of this, governments end up with a decent amount of money, and they try to store up as much money as possible, and they start to get into the banking business. And many governments begin to realize that, you know, it would probably be better for them if they controlled the money output instead of these other random merchants and institutions and temples and places like this. No, no, the government should control all of this and... That way, we are the ones that are get, getting wealthy, and we are the ones with the power, and we are the ones that control everything. And so you can see the draw here. So governments do begin to get into the money business. They begin controlling monetary policy in general. They can set exchange rates and values. They start stamping the coins with their own seals of their nation or their city, and governments start to take a bigger and bigger role in the money business. Now, what begins to happen is that as you have a government that controls the money output, well, a government is pretty stable and fairly trusted to an extent in certain ways. And uh, so what the government is able to do that maybe a single nobleman with a castle and a store of money that's acting as a banker, he might not have enough power or sway to do this. But a government can start issuing representative money. So what they can do is issue a certain coin, for example, that they deem is worth the equivalent of a pound of gold. But this coin is only an ounce of gold. And so it is the government promise that it is worth a pound that gives it its value of being worth a pound of gold. And so people can agree to this as long as the government is willing to exchange it for a pound of gold upon request. And so you can see this, this does make sense. So instead of a merchant actually having to carry around a pound of gold coins, they can just carry around a single coin that, although the intrinsic value of that coin cannot be melted down and get you the same value as a pound of gold, you can take it back to the government and they will exchange that one coin for a whole pound of gold. And so in a sense, it does have the value of a pound of gold even if it doesn't in and of itself have that same intrinsic value. So we start to see the beginnings of fiat money here. Now, let me read another quote to you. And this one's from Milton Friedman. 
he says that the history of mankind is the history of money losing value. And so we see that as money starts to be controlled more and more by governments and governments start to issue more representative money or fiat monies, then the value of that money starts to degrade over time. We have what we know now as inflation start to exist. And this is a natural evolution, but not necessarily a positive um, evolution here. So as we see that these banking institutions started to issue credit money and promissory notes and governments start to do the same thing and get into that same business, we start to see a certain dynamic that pops up, and it's obvious once you think about it, and that is that these governments and these institutions have these large stores of gold and coins that pretty much nobody is coming in and getting back because everybody is trading with the representative money, with these representative coins and paper notes and things of this nature, and that's what merchants are using and the marketplace is using. And every once in a while, someone will come in and redeem it for the actual gold itself. But in general, most of it just sits there. Probably, you know, 80 or 90% of it just doesn't move. It just sits there. And so the governments and the institutions start thinking about this and come to the conclusion that they would be better off if they put this gold to use. It's kind of just wasted down there, collecting dust and... We can actually use this. So what they decide is that as long as they keep enough in reserves that they can handle the small amount of redemptions that come in every once in a while, and maybe they keep enough where they can handle even a large influx of redemptions that might possibly come up if something big was going down, well, then they can take whatever's left over, whatever they deem appropriate as a safe amount, and they can use it. And so they're not going to use it just for their own personal well-being, typically. Um, Usually what they're going to do is use it as loans or investments. And so what they could do is they could take, say, 100 pounds of gold, and they could give it to a merchant who is going to, maybe is going to buy a new ship to start a new trade route between two cities that currently do not have a trade route. And if he can just get enough money to finish building this ship, then he can start this very lucrative trade. Well, maybe government of City A thinks that, you know, this is very lucrative and we want to get in on this and we'd love to see those profits. And we have all this gold sitting down in our vault that isn't being used. So what they do is they fund the merchant to finish this ship. And in exchange, they get maybe a percentage of his profits on his routes from then on. And so they finish building the ship for him. Then the merchant starts this trade route, starts making all this money, and that money flows back into the government coffers, and they're much better off for it. Well, another example would be that maybe instead of a direct investment, maybe they just do loans. So you have another trader that's wanting to build an actual structure right in the middle of the marketplace to sell his wares. And he needs a little bit of money to buy the lumber and the metal that he needs to build his, you know, his business, his store. 
And so he might go to the government or the institution and say, hey, I, I just need like 50 pounds of gold so that I can buy these different things. And if you would loan that to me, then I will pay it back to you as soon as I get it, which should just be maybe a month or two. And I'll even pay you some interest on top of that in exchange for loaning it to me ahead of time. And so we see the beginning of the loaning business. Now, what starts to happen is also obvious once you start to look at it. And that is that these governments and institutions start loaning out more and more and more on the smaller and smaller and smaller amounts of reserves that they have in stock. And so they start to get in this precarious position. Now, this is also fueled by the fact that they could make investments and they can make loans with the representative money that they issue out. So not only do they have these giant stores of gold and coins in their vaults that they can actually give out in the form of investments and loans, they also have this representative money that is just backed by their promise that represents a portion of these reserves that they can make as much of as they want to within reason. Um, It only has a small amount of the actual metal in it, so this isn't too hard and it's not too costly. So they start loaning out more and more. And this is what we know today as fractional reserve banking, where you split up these reserves into fractions and you go through banking practices with it. And so the 100 pounds of gold that you have in your vault is 100 pounds of gold, but you not only keep this 100 pounds of gold, you issue 100 pounds worth of a representative currency. So that's still a one-to-one ratio. You have 100 coins that represent each a pound of gold, and you have 100 pounds of gold, one-to-one. Well, then you think that, you know, it's very unlikely people will come back. So let's double that rate. So you issue another 100 coins, still only backed by this 100 pounds of gold. So you have 200 pounds worth of money out there that you have issued with only 100 pounds actually in your vault. Well, then you do the same for some loans and investments. And maybe you take 50 pounds of your gold reserves in your vault and loan that out to one merchant. So now you only have 50 pounds of gold in your vault, but 200 pounds worth of money that's flowing out there in the marketplace. Well, then maybe you issue out another 100 coins to a different merchant in the form of a loan. Well, now you have 300 pounds of gold worth of money floating around and only 50 pounds in your vaults. So you can see how this works. It's exponential and very risky and doesn't work very well. Now, the term that's used to describe the gold in the vault is called specie reserves. And so this is how much reserve you actually have of specie, which in this case would be gold. And so these specie reserves tend to get lower and lower and lower over time. Um, Now, what happens inevitably is that eventually there is a run on the bank. And so something happens, maybe the government's a little unstable or the religious beliefs start to change and people start pulling their money out of the temple or maybe a businessman that's involved in a banking institution 
you know, he has some bad things that start happening in his personal life and people start questioning the value of the money he's issuing and, you know, goes on and on and on. And you end up having people start pulling their money out. And then they run into this situation where one person ends up coming in and says, you know, I want my 10 pounds of gold. And they have to say, you know, I'm sorry, we don't have 10 more pounds of gold. We've given all of it out. So can you just be patient, please? Well, then, you know, five more people walk in demanding the same thing and, you know, it doesn't go so well. And so this is the way it inevitably starts to happen. Now, not only do you have what I could call corruption in this sense of loaning out way more than you actually have, you also start to see governments especially start debasing even their own currencies. So if a coin, for example, is supposed to have an ounce of gold in it, well, maybe the government starts mixing it with another type of metal and it only has a half ounce of gold in it, but they still say it has the same value as the coin that has one ounce of gold. Well, yeah, that that doesn't really work out very well either. But we see that starting to take place even more and more over time. And so the value of each coin, the intrinsic value although originally it's still not the same as what they claim it is worth on the open market because it represents a certain amount that they have in their stores of specie reserve. So even though it still has less value than it's exchanging for in the market, they even bring that value down more and more by diluting it or shaving off bits of each coin in order to get small amounts of metal that over time, when you do this over a thousand different coins, you get enough to make a few new coins basically for free by getting a little a little bit off of each one that comes through your storehouses. And so we start to see these other forms of corruption that are taking place, uh, mainly in governments, but also in different what we call banking institutions. So let's bring in another quote. This time we are hearing from Frederick Hayek, the Austrian economist, and he said that, with the exception only of the period of the gold standard, practically all governments of history have used their exclusive power to issue money to defraud and plunder the people. So he did not have the greatest view on the role of government in money, and he was, you know, generally right. We do see this throughout history. Now, we do see some interesting periods of time in different areas, typically in the 17 and 1800s, where you have these free banking eras. And so in Scotland, for example, they had what is known as a free banking era between 1716 and 1845, roughly. And what this is, is that the government kind of gives up its exclusive power to print money and allows that to be a free market system where any other bank can come up and start issuing notes and hold specie reserve and handle their business as they see fit. And the government does allow this instead of having the monopoly on money that began to be pretty much the commonplace occurrence by that time. And so in Scotland, for example, um, this went fairly well. The banking system was fairly stable. There were fairly competitive, but we do still see some major connections to the Bank of England, which would be kind of the 
institutional player here that's not necessarily part of this free banking era system. So, for example, there was a time when the Bank of England withdrew their specie redemption. And that's when, you know, there's probably a run on the bank or something of that nature. They're worried of that, at least. And so they said, you know, we're not going to redeem our notes in exchange for actual specie right now for a limited amount of time. And at the same time they did that, you saw some of these institutions that were part of this free banking era in Scotland do the exact same thing at the exact same time. And you see this kind of direct connection here. And there's a a few other issues that kind of show us that it wasn't technically a fully free market. Um, we see similar periods um, around the 17-1800s in Australia, Switzerland, uh, Sweden, even China, had time periods like this. And we see that typically they weren't as free as you would think, but at least they were much more free than a government monopoly. Now, let's look at one last quote. This one's from Alan Greenspan, a little more modern. And he said, While free banking was not actually as free as commonly perceived, it also was not nearly as unstable. The perception of the free banking era as an era of wildcat banking, marked by financial instability and, in particular, by widespread significant losses to note holders, also turns out to be exaggerated. Recent scholarship has demonstrated that free bank failures were not as common and resulting losses to note holders were not as severe as earlier historians had claimed. So that brings us into the free banking era of America, and that's more what he was referring to here. Kind of like we just said about some of these other examples, it wasn't quite as free as people would have thought. In America, the time period we're looking at here is 1837 to 1864, roughly. And what happened was that the federal government allowed banking to be regulated by the states themselves, the individual states. And so you saw different companies as well as banks, as well as new institutions start springing up and issuing their own personal notes. And oftentimes they did keep smaller and smaller specie reserves, just like governments did, and carried on with the same practices. Well, one of the problems, though, is like we talked about earlier in the history of credit money, that when you have an institution that is local that's issuing these credit notes and this fiat money, if an individual then takes that money to a city that, again, is hundreds of miles away, it might not actually be accepted at the face value because in order to redeem it, that individual that is accepting it from the first individual would have to come all the way back to the original city or the original company to redeem that note. And so it's not really worth as much to him. And so this did cause a problem, as well as these banks being typically only in specific states. So they were statewide, but not necessarily nationwide branches. And there were regulations, federal regulations, that um, that did have to do with this as well. Uh, many were forced to buy state bonds, And that was forced upon them, which didn't always go so well either. And like I said, a lot of them did get greedy and held less and less specie reserves. And so we see, we do see times when there were runs on the banks and a lot of these institutions did fail. 
and this did happen time and time again. However, instead of letting the market kind of take its course and weed out all these bad institutions and then hopefully keep the good ones and let them grow stronger and end up with a healthy financial system in a free banking scenario here, instead of that, you saw the federal government come back in with the National Banking Act of 1863. And... Basically, what they did here is they they needed money to fund the Union Army in the Civil War, and so the federal government went back to regulating money on their own and getting their own monopoly and nationalizing the currency, and that was pretty much the end of the free banking era in America. And so that's really all we're going to go over here today. Um, We start to see that by the 1900s, Most governments were on a gold standard of some sort where they did have gold in reserve, specie reserves that their notes could legally be redeemed for if demanded by an individual or a company. And we see that in general, governments were the ones that were in control of the money supplies. We don't see a lot of private monies going around in the 1900s. And Another thing we see is that there were typically single currencies because of this, because it was only the government currency, and we see that these currencies are pretty much as stable as the government is, which in most cases, in most, you know, places like England and France and America, you know, in general, those governments are pretty stable. And uh, so this is the atmosphere that we find ourselves in coming into the 1900s. Um, And we'll pick up on that next time we do our next money episode. So we'll leave off here for now. Um, We've now covered the origins of government and the origins of money. Next, we'll cover the origins of education, where we'll take a similar look as we have with these other two systems. And we will do that in relation to the education system and education in general. So please come back for that. That'll be very interesting, I believe. And once we wrap up this first series on the origins of these institutions, we'll move on to more modern histories where we look at more the 1900s and the beginnings of the systems that we currently have, like the Federal Reserve and the public school system and things of this nature. Um, So thank you for listening. Please subscribe and rate and review the podcast on whatever app you are listening to this on, whether it be iTunes or Spotify or Podcast Addict or any of the other probably hundreds of apps out there by now. Um, We do ask that you rate and that you give a review, and that you do officially subscribe because this helps us get the content out there and it helps this podcast show up a lot higher on search results. So if somebody is looking for this information, they'll be able to find it with your help and your ratings and reviews and subscriptions. Also, if you have any interest or you're willing to, please visit our Patreon page and that is patreon.com slash ourfoundations. And that's where you can go to give donations or to subscribe for a monthly pledge. 
the main one that we ask for is $4 a month, and that helps support getting this content out there through the research and the hosting fees and just all the different financial costs that do exist. It's just the reality of it. If you could help with that, that would be great, and we greatly appreciate it. There are some special perks that that we do give to our patrons, and depending on the level that you subscribe to, you get some different perks. Um, All of them do get access to special bonus episodes that will cover additional content. And so please look out for that. That would be great if you would at least go to our page, check it out, and um, see if that's something that you might be able to do. Our other location on the internet would be at the website of our hosting service, and that is at ourfoundations.podbean.com. And additionally, if you would like to contact us, you can do so by emailing. Anybody is free to email anything you want, and I will read it and get back to you or might even comment about it on an episode. The email address is ourfoundations.podbean.com protonmail.com and we also do have a Twitter account and that is at foundationspc Um, I am not much of a Twitter guy this is my first attempt here so you won't get a whole lot but we'll put a little bit out there and um, mention when new episodes come out and um, basically give some references to similar things that are going on in the world today that relate to the content we cover here in the podcast. So that's all I have for now. Thank you again for listening and for your support. Please continue to think critically, continue to learn yourself. I hope that you're all helping each other and therefore helping society evolve in a more positive way than how we are generally going to be looking at the evolution of these systems of our society. So thanks again and come back next time. Peace. Thank you for listening. Goodbye.